Today's scripture reading is from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you to find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, also if anything but death parts me from you. When Charlotte was praying, it was like uh, that one scene in Forrest Gump when um, the guy's giving that speech in front of the uh, Washington Monument, and then they plug, unplugged, and he's like, and then they plugged it back in, and that's all I have to say about that. Uh, <clears throat> um, <laughs> Uh, we've been uh, going into the Advent series, and uh, the, what is the Advent? The Advent are, it represents the weeks leading up to Christmas, and uh, we've been studying the lives of women over the course of this month, given to us in the Bible, and the reason why we're doing that is because Matthew, one of the authors uh, of the Gospels, he answers uh, this question, and basically what he does is he, he says, before I'm going to give you... Um, an account of the birth of Christ, which he does, he says, I'm going to give you a genealogy. I'm going to give you a family tree. Why does he do that? And the, and the reason is because of this. In those ancient times, genealogies were very, very important. Uh, genealogies tell you about a person, who they are. Uh, you know, today, the way we tell people about who we are and uh, and about a, lot of, a little bit more about us is we share resumes. Res- resumes tell us, you know, I went to this school and I accomplished these things. But in those days, what you accomplished individually meant very, very little. It was your family lineage, your family tree that was important. It was the accomplishments of the family and the family standing that meant something. It, held, it told us who somebody was. And so Matthew says, you will never be able to really understand Jesus unless you first understand his family tree, until you see what these lives actually point to. And so that's, that's, the, that's why we see the genealogy, and that's why it's there. But why the four mothers? Why the, why the mothers here of Jesus? If you look at ancient family trees, um, you'll almost never see any women. It's because in those ancient days, women meant very little in society, but Jesus' genealogy, written in those ancient days, you see women. You see women in it. And today we're going to look at Ruth. Um, 
we're going to look at Ruth. It's not just uh, one book. It's an entire, it's, just, uh, it's not just a passage. I mean, it's, it's an entire book. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide some features of the story. And then we're going to go and share quick teachings, three very, very quick teachings after I share with you the features, the summary of this entire story. So first, I'm going to share with you the summary of Ruth. Um, the story begins with Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, the emptiness of Naomi. Naomi is an Israelite immigrant who traveled into Moab during a time of famine. Moab was a neighboring country to Egypt. And um, she traveled as an immigrant to Moab with her husband. She had two sons. But disaster struck soon after because her husband passes away. And her, her two sons married two Moabite women, uh, women from that country, but then she also loses both her sons. So not only does she lose her husband, she loses both her sons. And if you think about it, that means that she is socially, economically broken. She's broken. Widows probably were the most socially and economically vulnerable in those days because not only were women very, very low in society, but women without families. This woman, this woman Naomi, she had no husband and no sons. So she is completely socially, economically vulnerable in her, in, in her day. Um, probably one of the most. Back then, the family structure, the leadership structure, the social structure, it, all re- it always rested on the, uh, on the family, particularly your economic structure. And here's Naomi. She's older. She's an older woman because her sons were all grown up and they were married. So she's older. So her chance of getting married again, nil. And she's got no sons If you had no husband, you had your sons, your children would take care of you, but she has no sons. So she is utterly broken, utterly destitute, utterly empty, no prospects at all in building a new family. Now, every culture in those days had a particular way, in our day as well, has a particular way of defining who the nobodies and the somebodies are in the culture. Now, we think we're beyond that. We think we're beyond that. We say, you know, really? If you think about it, really? You know, we look at those days and we say, you know, how could they have treated this destitute woman like that? And we scoff at that, but really? Because we say that, you know, in one breath, and then we look in the mirror and we, we're dissatisfied with um, our weight, we're dissatisfied with our salaries, we're dissatisfied with our jobs and our career path. You know, Naomi would never have cared for how, how much weight you put on, she never would have cared in her day with what you did individually, you know. She never would have cared for that. Um, she never would have cared for um, what type of salary you, you made or, or what kind of job you had. But, but what that tells us is that it's our culture. It's our culture. Our culture defines who the nobodies and our, and our somebodies are. Everyone gets self-esteem in part from what our culture says about us based on what the culture values. So it's a big deal. Naomi's got no name. She's got no name. Her family line is about to die out. And that's what the values of the culture rested on, the family. And she's got nothing. In fact, there's one particular passage. You know, she goes back. She goes back to Bethlehem finally because, you know, she's got nothing. She's lost everything in Moab. She goes back to Bethlehem. And the people recognize who she is. And they say, you know, could this be Naomi? And what does she tell them? She says in this book, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. It's because the word Naomi means sweet. 
And, she, and the word Mara means bitter. She's making a very sad play on her name. She says, you know, basically what she's saying is, you know, when I left Bethlehem to go to Moab, I was sweet. And now as I return, I am bitter. She says, you know, I left Bethlehem. I left, before I left with a husband and I had sons, my life was full. And now I've come back and it's empty. That's what she's saying. My life has turned bitter. I went away full and now it's come, I've come back empty. That's my lot in life. And so as a result, she tells her two daughters-in-law, she's got two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She says, I want you to go back home. I'm old. I'm bitter. But you're, you still have prospects for our family. You can still raise children. So I want you to go back home. You're young widows. You've got prospects. I want you to stay among your people, stay amongst your race, stay in your family, and you have a chance of building another family, a new family. Because she knows that if they follow her, life could actually be worse for them than it is for her. Why is that? It's because, you know, here's an example. Later on in the book, Ruth is in Bethlehem now. She's in Israel, and she's gleaning in the fields of Boaz. And Boaz, this man, looks at her gleaning in, the, in his fields, and he makes her a promise. He says, I want you to stay in my fields. Because if you leave my fields, you might get hurt. You might, harm might come to you. But I already told my people not to touch you, not to harm you. You know, yes, they're widows. Yes, they're foreigners. Um, but, you know, they're already socially marginalized. They're already in poverty. But Moab was not only a neighboring country of Israel. Moab was an enemy, an adversary to Israel. So this race, this culture was considered a racial counterpart to Israel, and they were enemies. There was a lot of racial animosity between the two countries. Every day, every day, that means Ruth, if in Israel, would risk suffering being an object of violence or something a lot worse than violence, you know, because she's basically a member of a hated race. She could be hurt. Something worse could happen to her. She could be killed. Naomi says, I want you to go back. Something worse could happen to you. I want you to go back. But in light of that, what does Ruth do? And we're seeing this in this passage here as we begin. What does Ruth do? She says, I'm going to summarize very quickly. She says, where you go, I will go. This is her mother-in-law she's speaking to. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, where you lodge, where you remain, I will remain. I will lodge. I will stay. Your people will be my people. I'm leaving my country. I'm leaving my family. I'm leaving everything that could have been. Your people are, my people will be. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. The only thing that will separate us is death. In other words, what she's saying is, I will bind myself to you in such a way that anything that happens to me Everything that happens to you will happen to me. So help me, God, until we die. What a promise. Now, every act of immigration, every act of immigration is always a drastic act. Most of us here are products of immigrants, but none of us here, very few of us here, have truly immigrated you know, maybe some of us have, and then you would understand. But, you know, 
most of us here are children of immigrants, and the one thing we do is we've seen now, we're at an age now, we can acknowledge the risks that our parents have taken. Immigrants, what do they do? They leave behind everything that's familiar. And they come to it, they leave everything behind, but it's always for a better life. And they're willing to leave it all behind for this better life, the hope of a better life. But what does Ruth do here? She leaves her family, she leaves her culture, she leaves her gods, she leaves everything that's familiar to her, knowing it's going to be a worse life. Immigrants always leave for a better life, but Ruth leaves actually knowing it's going to be a worse life for her. She's leaving all prospects for what could be better for her. She leaves it behind for a worse life. This is an amazing passage. She's an amazing woman if you think about it. And so now she's gleaning in the fields of Boaz. She's in the fields of Boaz and and she's picking up things that she can eat, you know, from the fields. And she happens onto one of Boaz's fields and Boaz actually hears of this amazing woman for the sake of her mother-in-law, to support her mother-in-law, you know, he's amazed by what she's willing to do, the sacrifices that she's willing to make. And so she makes this promise to Ruth and Ruth is amazed by Boaz's kindness to her mother-in-law and Boaz's kindness to her. And, and Naomi's amazed. Naomi says, you know, that man Boaz, it turns out that he's one of the few people who could be a kinsman redeemer. What's a kinsman redeemer? That's what she calls him. A kinsman redeemer by law, in Israelite and Jewish law, a kinsman redeemer had the right to buy back the ancestral land that, was, that belonged to a person. Naomi had a plot of land. Basically, your ancestors had a pot, plot of land, And when the Israelites first came into the land in Israel, each person was given a plot of land, an original plot of land. And, you know, you could sell it, you could give it away, you might lose it through death, but over time, somebody else might own the land. But a kinsman redeemer had the right, on behalf of the family who ancestrally owned the land, had the right to buy the land back. He would just have to marry into the family. He would have to marry Ruth. If he would just marry Ruth, he would be able to buy back this land for Naomi. Naomi says, you know, he could do this. He's actually our kinsman redeemer. He could do this for us. But why would he? Why would he do it for me? Why would he do it for you? You are a Moabite woman. You are poor. You offer nothing socially, nothing economically. You know, you've already been married. You know, so why would he do this for you? But you know what Ruth does? This despised woman in Israelite culture, in the night, enters into Boaz's home, into his bedroom, sits at his feet, and when he wakes up, she proposes to him. She proposes to him. And Boaz takes up the offer. He's so amazed. He takes up this offer, and what does he do? As a result, he restores the line of Naomi. Um, He marries Ruth because of her courageous, sacrificial love, and because, of, you know, because Boaz is an, ancestral, is an ancestor you know, of, uh, well, basically, Boaz marries Ruth. They have a child. They have Obed. Obed has a child. His name is Jesse. Jesse has a child. His name is David. And through David, through the line of Judah, we see Jesus being born. That's how Ruth and Naomi get spliced into the line of Jesus. And that's why she's in the genealogy. Now, Ruth before had no name, no name. Now she's got, she's basically the ancestor to the one we call the name above all names. 
And I don't know, you know, she's a woman in a society where we look down on women in, in those days. But, you know, if you think about it, I, I don't know about you, 25 years from now, I don't know if, if any one of us here will be studied the way we study Ruth today. An amazing woman. She's poor, she's vulnerable, she's despised, she's bold, she's courageous, she's humble, and she's womanly all at the same time. An amazing woman. Now, what are the lessons? What are some of the lessons we can learn? Three very, very quick lessons. First, we see the power of friendships. The absolute life-changing power of friendship. I really like the way, um, you know, one of my favorite preachers framed it. He, said, he calls it the absolute life-changing power of friendship. It's the most powerful thing on earth. You know, um, Naomi says, I want you to go back to your gods. I want you to go back to your gods. I want you to go back to your family, which is basically to say, I want you to go back to your gods. I want you to go back to your old life. And, and Ruth says, may the Lord deal with me. May the Lord deal with me. She uses the word Yahweh. Now, in those days, in those ancient days, there were many words for the word God. If you understood or knew about God generically, you would use words like Adonai, you would use words like Elohim, but Ruth here uses a particular word that only God's chosen people would use in reference to their relationship with God. It was a loving, covenantal, unfailing relationship that they acknowledged. Those people would call God the Lord. It's capitalized, the word Lord is capitalized in your Bibles. It's it's translated Yahweh. It's the word that God used when he said, you know, when Moses said, who said, when I tell the Pharaoh, when Pharaoh asks me who sent me, what do I tell him? He says, I want you to tell him that the Lord sent you. It is a very covenantal, loving, life-binding um, word uh, for a God um, representing his love for his people. In other words, Ruth is saying, at this moment, right now, I'm changing. I'm going to take on your God. I believe. I want your God to be my God. That's what he's saying. That's what she's saying. Now, what converts Ruth? Was it because Naomi had great arguments? Was it because she made a very great case for God? I mean, Naomi has lost everything. Is she making a great case because of her lifestyle? You know, is that why the, the, that Ruth was brought in? Na, you know, because Naomi just wasn't, you know, um, was this incredible, outstanding character. She's saying, I'm bitter. My life has changed. I'm bitter. I want you to go back. That's what she says. Naomi isn't rude to her. Naomi doesn't fight with Ruth about her disbelief, her unbelief. It's the relationship. You know, in her loss, in Naomi's emptiness, in her bitterness, she still cares enough for Ruth. You know, she says, you know, I've got nothing. I've got no husband. I've got no children. I only have you. But I want you to have a better life. I want you to go and prosper. I want you to have a chance at living again. So I want you to go back. Leave me alone. It's okay. I want you to go back. That's love. Sacrificial love. She's destitute. She's empty. She's got nothing, but she wants to send her daughters-in-law back out of love, sacrificing her needs for their needs. And you know what? This gets Ruth. This moves Ruth. She says, you know what? I want your God. I want your God. When Naomi loves Ruth, even though she doesn't believe, that's when she starts to believe. It makes Naomi's faith credible. It makes it credible. 
She says, you know, your God teaches you to put my needs ahead of your own. That is completely otherworldly. My God's never taught me that. What, what makes you do that? What drives you to do that? Even in your, the peak of your loss, the peak of your, your shame, the peak of your, uh, your, your, your emptiness, you have this unselfish love for me. And you know what results in that? You know, genuine, unconditional friendship. That's what results. The most transforming factor in our meeting God, think about it, how did any of us come to faith in Christ? The most transforming factor in our encounter with God is what? The unconditional love of our friendships, people who've loved us. It's an enormous commitment of love. Ruth is able to make a sacrificial commitment of love. Why? Because she is the recipient of a sacrificial commitment and love. It's what gave her wisdom. It's what woke her up. It's what gave her strength. You know, think about, you know, think about how it's, it's how most people find God. Powerful friendships. Powerful friendships come in two components. You need both. You see this in Ruth's statement. She says, where you go... I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. That's time. In other words, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to sit with you. That's time. Friendships equal time. Through thick and thin, they help each other to see who God is. That's time. Now, she says, where you die, I will die. That means I'm committed to you until death do us part. If you have time... Without commitment, you have no depth. There's really no change. It's a very, very superficial relationship. And, uh, and as a result, um, you know, you're, you're not going to find hope in that friendship a whole lot. If you have commitment and no time, then there's a tremendous amount of sentiment, you know, uh, when there's presence there. But really, it's just a theory. There's really no friendship. Why? Because there, you, don't, you haven't given the opportunity to see this friendship through thick and thin. You haven't had the opportunity to do that. So you need time and commitment. Otherwise, it's going to be superficial or it's just going to be a theory. It's just going to be sentiment. But at the end of the day, with time and commitment that we show to the people that we love, you know, it's those powerful friendships that lead towards change. That was Ruth's life. Changed through Naomi's uh, powerful love shown to her, powerful sacrifice you know, over the course of time, the commitment. That's what she sees. Now, the second thing. There are um, signs of hope. You know, Thornton Wilder, in his uh, amazing play, Our Town, you know, you have Emily, who um, was this person who took her family for granted, who took everything for granted, but she, through tragedy, passes away. She dies, and it's her ghost that pretty much takes the rest of the play through. And she's speaking with the narrator, the only other person who's around, and, you know, she wakes up in the morning and, and she sees Sunday morning and, and, and everyone's, you know, the mother's cooking food and she smells the food, but she sits down at the table. There's no place for her. And she says, gosh, it's not the drastic things that I miss. You know what I miss? I miss having breakfast with my family. I can smell the food, but I can't taste it. It's the everyday mundane things that I've taken for granted all my life that I can't experience anymore. And that's what makes me miss life. She says, every minute we have to cherish. That's what she says. 
Do you know that God is doing 10,000 things right now for his glory and for your good? But the thing is, we don't see what he's doing for his glory, and we don't see what he's doing for our good. You know why? Because we're blind. We don't know. We don't know what God is doing a lot of times because it's embedded in a veil of suffering. It's embedded in a veil of shame, a veil of shame and, and loss and hardship. In this passage, all you see is what? It's a hard, hard life. It's a hard life. A mother loses her sons. A wife loses her spouse. These daughters-in-law, loses, they lose their spouses. And they have to make this long journey back towards uh, Naomi's hometown. And they have no food and they have no money. They're just absolutely desolate. It's just a hard, hard life in this text. You know, how do you see hope in this text? Naomi doesn't see it. Naomi doesn't see the hope. Naomi, she's suffering. and She says, my life is bitter. Her friends see her and say, could this be Naomi? She says, no, call me bitter. I used to be sweet, call me bitter. A lot of us look at life that way. Our lives have taken a left turn and we, that's all we see, the bitterness and the loss and the emptiness and, and, and we see our lives as bitter and empty and lost. God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. We just don't see it. We just don't see it. And, and you know why? A lot of time, you know, in this passage you see there's no dramatic answer to prayer. There's no dramatic answer to prayer. There's no miracle that happens. There's no flashes of light or brilliance or, or, or voice, this audible voice that comes from heaven. There's nothing like that. There's no one connecting directly with God. There's very little mention, actually, of God. God is working in the mundane things of our lives every day. And he's doing those things. He's weaving all these things together in our lives in a way that's going to be for his glory and for our good. And somehow he brings it all together. And it's sometimes veiled in a shroud of suffering and shame and loss and emptiness and bitterness. And the thing is, the reason why we are empty and bitter and we feel lost is because we don't see what he is doing. We don't see what he is doing. We're just blind. Because much of what God is doing is hidden in the surface. Jesus Christ King of kings, in a manger, completely outcast from any inn or hotel space. He's, he's literally in a shroud, swaddling cloths, as we read earlier today in the call to worship, in a manger, hidden among the animals, in the smell of the animals. God is still at work, even if we don't see it. And he's at work in the mundane times, the hard times. Most of the time, we're not going to hear an audible voice. Most of the time, we're not going to see incredible miracles take place because the miracles are embedded. As Thornton Wilder's play very explicitly says, life, the mundane, the everyday, the every minute is the miracle in and of itself. That's what it is. We're just blind. You know, Naomi come back, comes back and she says, I'm empty. You know, and, and she says, you know, her friends, you know, who recognize her could have said, well, who, who's this person next to you? Before, you, you didn't leave with her, but you came back with her. Who's this person? You know, Ruth could have said, well, what am I? Your life is empty. What am I in your life? I just came back. I gave up everything for you. She can't see it because her world has shrunk to the size of her suffering. And it's made her blind. That's all she sees. A lot of us have agendas in our lives. Naomi has an agenda in her life, and she has lost it. She has been disappointed. It has failed her in many ways. 
And so her world has been dashed to pieces, and she can't see the hope. And a lot of us live that way. We have agendas in our lives, and the moment life takes a left turn, we go into despair because we don't see what God is doing. And it makes us feel incredibly empty. And, and, and we forget that God is doing amazing things in life every day, especially, particularly in the mundane things of the world, the difficult times. And if you don't see it, you know, think about it. If you don't see what God is doing every day, the amazing things that God is doing every day, does that mean that amazing things that God is doing every day aren't there? If you don't see God present in your suffering, does that mean that he's not there? Is that logic? Is that good logic? It's definitely not intelligent logic, but is it good logic? It just happened to be that Naomi lost her husband. It just happened to be that Ruth, Naomi's son, Ruth lost her husband. And that, um, that Naomi lost her other son. It just happened to be that he lost, she lost her husband and her two sons, that Ruth and Orpah lost their husbands, basically. It just happened to be that Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz. It just happened to be that Boaz was standing out there and sees Ruth. It just happened to be that Boaz was the kinsman redeemer who could buy back the land and restore Naomi's life and Ruth's life to them. It just happened to be, really, it just happened. It just happened to be. God is doing If any one of those things were taken out of the picture, Jesus would never have been born. It just happened to be, really, God is doing amazing things in our lives every day in our suffering. He's working in the mundane. He's working in the hard times, underneath a veil of suffering, underneath a veil of shame and despair and sometimes utter hopelessness or seeming hopelessness. How many thrones in the world are there. There are many thrones. There are many thrones. Uh, Sorry, there are not many thrones. How many thrones are there? Not many thrones. How many mangers are there? A lot more than thrones. God works through the mundane. God works through the mangers. That's what he does. So don't ever say, God has abandoned me. There are signs of life in everyday life. Every minute there is hope. Signs of hope. Naomi says, I'm bitter. But Ruth is clinging to her. And you know what that is? Ruth, you know, Naomi doesn't see it, but Ruth is the representative of God clinging to Naomi, saying, I am not going to let you go because it's through Ruth that Naomi is completely restored. She has no idea. She has no idea because, you know, she is so in her pain and in her suffering. Now, if you take the first thing, the first point, which is uh, the power of friendships, the life-changing power of relationships and friendships, and you marry that with the second thing, that God works through the undane, the mundane, the undane, the mundane, what does that tell you? That's every day. That's every day. You have to cherish every minute. You have to take advantage of every opportunity, every conversation. You have to love people. You have to hope in people. And you have to look for hope in every opportunity that you have. Every minute of your life, you have to find hope. I'm not an optimist. You know, I used to think I was a realist. I think I'm, I'm, I'm like a borderline. I'm definitely a skeptic, you know. And if I go too far to the left, I'll become a cynic. But the thing is, what this passage teaches us? And it protects us from cynicism and hopelessness. There are signs of hope in every person and in everything. And if you don't see it, it's not God that's absent. 
It's your eyes that are closed. Wisdom teaches us to open and see. And the goal is not to try to figure out what God is doing because you don't know. How can you know? The goal is to hope and know and trust. That's what it is. Don't ever say that God has abandoned you. Now, some of you are saying, it sounds good, cherish every moment. You know, I've heard this before. You know, um, you're a pastor. You're supposed to give us some hope. Um, God is supposed to be present in our suffering, but I don't really feel it. And what you're really saying is, I get you intellectually, you know, but it hasn't really sunk in. That's what you're saying. You know what you need? You need a Ruth in your life. You need a Ruth in your life. Every one of us here is called to be a Ruth. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to give in a way that's, you know, even in the midst of our emptiness. You can't, you know that phrase, you know, you can't give what you can't have? That's, it's a lie. It's actually a lie. Um, we are called to give in our emptiness. We are called to love, you know, when we are bitter and when we are suffering. But if you, haven't, if, you have, if you don't feel it, if you don't sense God's presence in your suffering, you need a Ruth. You need someone then who is giving sacrificially with commitment and time for you. That's what you need. You need to experience it through a Ruth. Naomi says, my God has dealt bitterly with me. You know, my God has smitten me. My, my God has devastated me. And then Ruth says, I want your God to be my God. You know, if Naomi took a step back and thought about it, she would have said, you know, my God has devastated me. You want what? Are you crazy? Why would you want that? What is it about this God? What is it about this God? Na- Ruth saw the sacrificial love of Naomi in the midst of her pain, and, and, and she says, you know, if your God in the midst of your emptiness and bitterness and loss makes you love like that, then there must be some sort of love behind your suffering because there's no way that I, look at me, I'm lost and I'm completely empty. But to see that even in your emptiness, you know, and we live similar lives. We have, we're in a similar place, similar context. The only thing different is our gods. The only thing different is our gods. There must be some love in your suffering that's behind your suffering, driving your suffering. I want that because I'm lost too. I just lost my husband. I'm lost. I want that too. Now, sometimes you are the Ruth in other people's lives. Other times you need a Ruth. You know, you you don't just... um, you don't just need somebody who's going to accept you or correct you. That's not, that's not what Ruth is. You need someone who's present, who's committed to you, walking with you over time. That's what you need. The blessing that you sometimes are blind to, but suffering and walking with you, we need that. We all need that. You need to be that, but you really need that. And the bottom line is it never happens outside of community. Now, I'm going to make a shameless plug here. You've got to get into a community group. Because that's the journey. That's the time. That's the commitment. This is once a week. This is once a week for an hour and like a half tops. And if I go a little bit longer, it's like an hour and 40 minutes, right? You know relationships are going to be built here. If you're coming here to build relationships, don't lie to yourself. And don't be deceived. You know, worship here is a miracle. But the thing is, the real blessing comes through the sharing and the fellowship and community. Plug into a community group. 
okay? Um, now, um, it never happens outside community. Um, sometimes God still seems absent, but he's working, and he's working, and he's there. And if you don't see it, then we're blind. Now, so we talked about the power of friendships. Um, we talked about, and that takes time and commitment, and we talked about then that we should always be hoping. There are signs of hope in everyday life, you know. Then the third point is um, we need to be transformed. We experience the transforming power of grace, God's grace, God's love. You know, Ruth, if you look at it the traditional way, you know, traditional churches look at Ruth, and we say, look at Ruth. She was a great girl. Obey your parents, obey your mothers, and obey your mother-in-law, right? That could be the lesson here. Traditional churches tend to teach, um, you know, this good girl, you know, marries a good guy as a result, um, and she's rescued from her poverty, and as a result, and then she has babies, which, which means that she's incredibly rich in those days, right? You know, so be good, be like Ruth. That's what we're taught. You know, nothing. Let me tell you this. Nothing can be further from the truth. Nothing. Ruth is very non-traditional. Ruth takes traditionalism and turns it upside down. You know, she subverts traditional society. The traditional society focused on the family. So if she was a traditional person, when Naomi said, I want you to go back, what do you think Naomi expected? It wasn't like she was expecting, it's not like she's like, I want you to go back, go, go. And if she's walking away and she's like, you know, that's not what she did. That's not what, that's not what Naomi was doing. She's saying, she is embedded in her culture and a society that values family. And what she's saying is, go, go, have a family. You want that. You need that. It's expected of you, and you expect it. Go. You know, but Ruth subverts that. She says, where you go, to the worst place, I may get beaten, I may, you know, lose my life, but I will go with you. She subverts traditional society. And, uh, you know, she says, you know, I know you want me to go back to being with my blood kin, but... I want a life based on grace. That's basically what she says. My life is not going to be blood-based. It's going to be grace-based. I've experienced grace, and I want, to, I want to live it out. And as a result, she becomes the breadwinner, completely non-traditional in that society. She is the one that works, completely non-traditional. She's gleaning in the fields of Boaz. She's working, completely non-traditional in that society. She's the one that's toiling and she's the one that's suffering, completely non-traditional against everything that society held as a standard for women in those days. In this narrative, the younger person becomes the hero. You know, the woman becomes the hero. In traditional society, there was no such thing as interracial marriage. Here, redemption. Jesus comes out of what? An interracial marriage. That's what Jesus comes out of. God says, I don't care about the world's values. I don't care about the world's standards. I'm going to stand them right on their head. In a traditional society, men are greater than women. But what do you see here? 2,500 years later, we're studying Ruth. We're studying Ruth. And, and later on, Ruth has a son, and they don't say, you know, yay, you know, you have a son. That's not what they celebrate. You know what they say? They say, Naomi. Through Ruth, you have a son. Ruth is better than, than having seven sons. Seven is the perfect number. What they're really saying is, having Ruth, Naomi, that's the blessing. 
She is worth more than an infinite number of sons. The perfect number. She's worth more than an infinite number of sons. Naomi, they say, Naomi, Ruth is the blessing. The world's standards are stupid. That's what it's saying here. God chose to work to the younger person, the poor person, the, the marginalized person, the widow, the foreigner. Life is about grace. That's what it teaches us. Some of us here are broken. We're all broken. But some of us have experienced in the last several years incredible brokenness. And it's made us bitter. Our lives have become empty yeah, because you've suffered a lot of loss in your life. You know, and, and what you're really saying every day, you know, when you, the way you speak to people, the way you conduct your life, you're basically saying, call me Mara. I was once sweet or I had a vision of sweetness and now I'm bitter. Just call me bitter. You know what this passage tells us? You're free. You're free. You can be free. Life has taken a left turn or maybe you've made decisions that have taken you left, completely far left. It says you're free. That's what this text tells you. You're free. Others of us here, we feel like we fit in that traditional mold. We went to the right college. We got the right job. You know, we're in the right place in society and we lived a very, very good life. And you know what? And you're living life and you're full of anxiety and you're always looking around, comparing yourself with other people and you have bouts of covetousness and you have bouts of jealousy and, you've, and there's still brokenness in your life and, and you're struggling to deal with that and you're like Joseph Stalin, you raise your fist up and you're saying, why me? Why do I get to live this kind of life? I'm supposed to have more than this. You know why? It's because you do fit in the traditional mold. You know, everything about your life is perfect and your house is perfect and your family is supposed to be perfect on the outside. This text says you are free. This is the end of snobbiness. This is the end of looking around, looking over your shoulder, you know, stepping over other people to get ahead. This is the end of every, all of that. That's what this is. This is the end of snobbiness. It's the end of comparisons. It's the end of jealousy. It's the end of covetousness. The end of just bitterness, even in the midst of prosperity. Who's the hero here? Who's the hero? You would never compare yourself. If you had a Ruth here sitting in this congregation, you, and we, we may do that, we may have that, you would never compare yourself to Ruth. You know why? Because you'd always win. You'd always win. You would never compare yourself to Ruth. And yet 2,500 years later, we're studying Ruth. We're studying the life of Ruth. Now, if I say, let's pray, some of you will say, wait a minute, that's really hard to do. That's really hard. I, I struggle with that, you know. And you know, I would never end a sermon with, let's look to Ruth, let's thank God for Ruth, let's learn from Ruth, let's pray. You know, I would never end a sermon like that. How do we get free? How do we get free? You'll say, on my own, I can't do this. I can't do this. Why is Ruth in the Bible? Why did God choose Ruth to be in the Bible? And it's because of this. Ruth points to somebody who will come after her, her descendant. She's the ancestor. When Ruth looked at Naomi, you know, really what she's saying, to, as, she, as she's hearing and processing what Naomi's saying to her, Ruth is looking at her. You know what she's thinking? If I keep my life, Naomi will die. If I keep my life, Naomi is going to die. 
But if I have a shot at giving Naomi a life, my life is pretty much over. That's Ruth. So she concludes, so I'm going to sacrifice my life so that Naomi has got a shot at living her life. I'm going to take Naomi's reputation on myself. I'm going to take Naomi's um, poverty on myself. Uh, Naomi's going to be marginalized in her own society, even among her people. But I'm going to take that marginality on myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Who does Ruth point to? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For your sake, right? For your sake, he who, had, who was rich became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Ruth left her father's house, her family, the dream of what could have been, her own country. She comes down and becomes an outsider, a foreigner, risked being beaten, risked being scorned. She became a sufferer. She became a servant. She became undignified, unwomanly at times, sacrificed even her just womanliness to become rejected and scorned and despised. Who does she remind you of? What made Ruth great? Do you think what made her great was, you know what, you know, I want to be a sacrificial person. So that's the lesson. You know, just be like Ruth. You think that's what made her great? You think that's the reason why we're studying her today? You know, because she says, you know, Ruth is a woman of resolve, so we need to have resolve. You think that's what we're, we're taught here today? Ruth saw an act a sacrificial love that she could not explain, she could not account for, and it changed her. And if the sight of Naomi's love made Ruth fall in love with her, how much more the sight, this is my favorite hymn, he left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. If the sight of Naomi's you know, love for Ruth made Ruth just completely change Ruth and fell for, to fall for Naomi, how much more could the sight of he left his father's country, his father's throne, his home, what could have been to become a foreigner, to be scorned, to be despised, to be destitute, to be empty, to empty himself of everything but his love, how much more could we see that and behold that and make us fall in love with Jesus? Jesus left the ultimate house, the ultimate father, the ultimate country where we're all headed and came down. He came to that which was his own, John chapter 1, but his own did not even receive him. You know, my, Naomi says, my God has dealt bitterly with me. I'm smitten. I'm devastated. But really, God was present. Jesus on the cross says, I have been forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't even call him father. The only place in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't call God his father, which means I've lost my father. I've left my father. I've been kicked out of my home. I've become disowned. I've lost everything. I've lost everything. I have been smitten. I have been devastated. And in reality, God is not present. God has abandoned me. I'm emptied. I'm broken. I've been beaten. I've been scorned. I didn't just risk death as a foreigner. I died. I died for you. That's Jesus. That's his love. That's his grace. That's the only love that can truly transform you to the core. What would allow you to take great risks and find hope for another person? 
What would allow you to do that? What would allow you to commit with time and your own commitment in the midst of your suffering? What would allow you to do that? What would power you to do that? It's only if you experienced a love that was so great it could transform you on the inside out. When you see what Jesus did for us, when you experience the sight of ultimate beauty, true beauty, the ultimate Ruth, marred for our perfection, the ultimate Boaz, you know, our Redeemer, the ultimate, the true Naomi, he's ultimately sweet and yet he becomes the true Mara for our sake. Why? So that we who are bitter and broken can become sweet and offering to God. Then and only then can you become a Ruth to other people in your suffering. Then and only then will you be able to hope in suffering. Step outside of your life. Step outside of that. The world has shrunk into the size of your problems. Then you can step out of that because you know you were meant for another world. You can step outside of that. Be a friend in this season. Be a friend, a real friend to others. Live with hope and see and observe and trust that God is active in every moment of your life to shape you. Will you do that this week? Let's pray.